This is Life Made Better, a podcast from two coaches with a zest for not only their lives, but yours. In this series, Fleur and Lucia seek out tips, tools, and exercises to inspire you to achieve your dreams and goals. Join us and let's make life better. Welcome back to Life Made Better, the podcast where we interview interesting people that not only inspire us, but so that we can find out how they made their life better and how we can learn from their story and challenges. Today, we're interviewing the lovely Savannah Coloni. Savannah is an executive coach who began her career in finance. In the last 15 years, she's been coaching a wide range of clients, from employees designated as high potential or placed on their organization's promotion track to very senior executives and business owners. Some of her clients are in the financial services sector. They value her 15 years professional experience at Bankers Trust Financial Group in the roles of fixed interest dealer, equity analysis, fund manager, and head of global sector groups. Some clients are drawn by her rigor of training and synthesis of different approaches and styles. Savannah puts her clients at ease while challenging their accepted norms and constraints. This allows them to create new business relationships and visions. Savannah and I recently met on our presence-based coaching course, which highlights the breadth of understanding she is achieving to help her clients be the best person they can be to lead their businesses. Welcome, Savannah. Well, thank you very much, Fleur and, and Lucia. It's lovely to be here this afternoon. And we're so happy to have you here. But can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I guess I was trying to think, how could I describe what I do, apart from the fact that I am an executive coach? And I think if I look back to, as you pointed out, I had a significant period of time within financial services at a very senior level. And then I pivoted, if you'd like, towards coaching. And some people sort of think that, it's a very odd move going from spreadsheets and returns on investment and, uh, you know, the hustle and bustle of the financial markets to being nurturing and caring and listening deeply to people. What I'd say, though, is when I was an investment analyst, we used to spend a lot of time trying to understand the managers of the businesses. So we really wanted to peel back the layers of what made them tick. Did they understand the business? Did they understand the competitive environment? Did they have a succession plan in place? How did they engage their employees? You know, what was their longer-term vision? So we were long-term investors. Well, we used to call it value investing at one point it, it changed a little bit to, to another style. But the point was we weren't just going with the, the peaks of the market. We weren't just going with momentum. We were looking for what we thought was undervalued. And I think there's a real link to what I do now with executives or business owners or people who are trying to climb the, the ladder is that there's something undervalued about them. Either themselves, they don't recognise their own value or perhaps their corporation doesn't yet see them at the level that they would like them to be. So I see myself as helping people to bring that value to the fore and to bring that value to others to make the workplaces better, to make their lives better, to make their communities better. And I guess one other point I'd make is I see myself as a bridge between that financial services world and the world of coaching because 
it was interesting. I was only sharing recently with a client who I'd had five years ago. His corporation had had funded the engagement, and he's now come back to me himself personally funding it. And uh, he was asking me a little bit about my own journey, and I was saying, well. I do a lot of training, like you, Fleur. I'm very curious. I like to, to learn things continuously. And I remember when in one of my very first trainings, we had to respond to music. So there was a somatic approach. You know, we had to move our bodies and respond to different types of music. And I stood there with my feet firmly planted on the ground, my arms crossed over my chest, and I swayed probably, oh, I don't know, 10 degrees <laughs> either side. <laughs> Whereas the other coaches, you know, some were swirling and crawling on the floor and jumping. And I remember looking around thinking, my God, I've joined a group of pixies. These are people at the end of the garden. <laughs> Whereas now I have a much greater appreciation for music, for emotion, for our bodies, our body dispositions, how all of that's intertwined in terms of how we can make better decisions, how we can engage more with others, how we can be more creative but it, it's been my own journey. So I've had to walk across that bridge from, you know, that financial markets mindset to a more co-creative, more seeing possibilities, I guess, these days. Mm. I mean, all that is, is music to my ears, Silvana. <laughs> that's because that's, you know, that is in a nutshell what we help people do as well. I'm coming from a creative background as well. And, and, you know, very fast-paced industry, uh, you know, managing global clients, global people around the world, what everything needs to happen yesterday. And I think what I was hearing, uh, you know, from that introduction that you were making about your path is a lot of that being in that hamster wheel. We are just in this business where we just need to see the bottom line, obviously coming from finance even more. So that return of investment needs to happen is, you know, maximizing how we can make it. <laughs> And at the end of the day, you just forget that you're a person working in the business and particularly leaders forget that it's just not a business, it's people working on that business. So to hear that journey, to hear how you came to understand, if I'm hearing correctly, that you know we needed to empower those individuals so they could also be swaying away with the music. Mm, that's, mm. that's beautiful because I think that's when really changes start to happen that like, you know I, I like to call it magic because I'm maybe one of one of those pixies at the end of the garden <laughs> yes. Yes. but that's when that's when the change that's when the shift to start to happen and that's what difference starts to appear and definitely I mean obviously coming from a creative environment maybe you are more attuned to seeing that but I'm curious to hear you know, how did you then go from finding that change yourself to then introducing that change from a leadership perspective, especially when you're coming from a very, I would say what is culturally regarded of a more rigid environment where introducing this pixie, I'm going to put it in brackets, if you wish, might be a bit more reticent. So how did the shift happen? How did you start introducing this concept and, and delivering those uh, nuggets and changes for these companies? Yeah, and I think that's a really great point because I think in our coach training, we're, we're taught to meet people where they're at. Right? So meet them where their level of comfort is, where their level of understanding is, where they'll be open. 
you know, if you take them immediately somewhere else, they'll be resistant because we tend to be fearful of what we don't know. We tend to be fearful of what we think we can't control, although, as we know, the paradox is we can control very little. But the, the point is, I think, possibly by working with financial services firms or if they're not financial services, they're sometimes similar, like they may be legal or um, accounts or scientists. So people who have a, let's broadly say, on, off, black, white, yes, no, binary way of seeing the world. You know, that's their primary training. They're very analytical. And if I can meet them where they're at and they and we have a sense of trust between us and then they can be more comfortable and open up a little bit more and then they'll start walking those little steps. You know, you don't want to do something too frightening or, or too out of their comfort zone because they'll just retreat. So it's it's little step by step. In fact, there's a book called Kaizen, which I really like, which is the idea of just make small changes, small steps, build on those, build the confidence, build the practice, and then you will get better because you won't be frightened. You know, you, you'll feel validated because you've made those small steps, you've seen that the achievements, you've had some validation from someone else, and that'll give you the energy to go forward. Mm. So what I'm hearing is that normally people in these uh, jobs, like you said, are more analytical and they need to be more emotionally intelligent for their ability to relate to others. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I have an interesting anecdote on that front. So sometime early when I'd become an executive vice president, we were uh, taken off on a, a jolly, you know, a weekend away with all the senior executive team. And uh, we were given tasks that we had to do collectively, you know, problem solving, this, that and the other. And I remember being with one colleague. So he was from the back office. So from the administrative side, I was called front office. And um, at one point, he just went, oh, Silvana, you're just so analytical. And it was like, I'm an analyst. Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> and at the time, I didn't realise what he meant. And, and now I get it. I mean, obviously, I was problem solving. I was going a particular way. I could see what was right. I wasn't tolerating, you know, other perspectives. Whereas now I completely recognise that in order to engage with people in order to help them feel like they can make a contribution, that their perspective is valid, that in fact, without their perspective, we're at risk. So you need multiple and diverse perspectives, you know, different lived experiences, etc. So now I'm much better at, at being able to listen, stay quiet, <laughs> think about a different perspective, maybe walk in someone else's shoes, for instance, you know, get a sense of why it is that they see the world as they do or how they see the world and how they engage with the world. And that's one of the things I work a lot with my clients on because, you know, they've got to their positions because they've, they're bright or they're an expert or they're talented or they've made lots of money. You know, they're, they're there for a reason and their reputation is wrapped up in that. So they sort of take the view, it's my way or the highway. I've got it right. I'm here because I have the answers. I'm here because I know how to do it. So they don't find it that easy initially to actually sit back and listen. To, to not come up with the answer immediately, to ponder or to reflect 
to contemplate something that's vastly different from how they would see it or from what their experience would suggest. And that's a real shift. Mm. I'm loving that because I think, again, going back to that fast-paced reference that I made earlier, part of being in that is that we need to, we think that we should respond we need to come up with something straight away. But actually what I was just hearing is like, hang on a minute, let's just think about this for a second. Let's just pause on this and reflect on this and how that can shift everything, but how pretty little we do it. And as a society, we are not inclined to do it. It's kind of like, you know, think fast, buy fast, click here, get it, do it straight away. For me, that is such a, a, a huge shifter, a huge changer. Yeah, and I'd say also, I think one of the things about the pandemic is that it has shown us that some ways of managing and leading that were very, let's call it linear, or very much about uh, best practice and repeatable, you know, replicable uh, certain types of situations are no longer valid or, or can't cope with really complex situations. So a silver lining, let's say, of, of the pandemic is it's it's meant that businesses have had to stop in their tracks and do things differently, you know, engage in hybrid working or completely offline working, uh, ask different people what their perspective is, be much more conscious of mental health, you know, and, and physical well-being. You know, one of my clients says, well, you know, now I have to constantly take into account the, the mental health of my staff. I can't make the demands of them that I, that we would have previously. It, it's just no longer possible. And I think, you know, and, and I certainly hope that once things get to back to so-called normal, or at least the new normal, whatever that may be, that we don't revert to some of those bad practices, which was, you know, working all the hours God sends, keeping people on 24-7, not, not allowing people the time to pause and reflect and, and re-energise, not allowing to, to set boundaries, not allowing people to say, well, it's it's my night off or it's my weekend or it's, you know, I only work through this particular time. I won't answer emails at 3am or 6am or on my Sunday. So I'm hoping that people will have seen the benefits of, of the pause, the benefits of the listening to other perspectives, and that being in the unknown, as frightening as it may be, it's what, what you might call a liminal space. You know, you're between things. And in that liminal space is when new things can create, be created or new perspectives can be observed or dots can be joined differently, you know, the, the Rubrics Cube can be put together. So that liminal space, that unknown, and, and, you know, I say that having been someone who historically would have been called a control freak. These days I like to think I'm a control enthusiast <laughs> and then I can occasionally let go. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that all the research shows, doesn't it, that better leaders are la can hold complexity and unpredictability more so they can let go of control. And to do that, you do need to be able to be more emotionally intelligent. Otherwise, it's impossible to take into account all these different people and their needs and their emotions and, you know, what they might be dealing with at home. So it takes a, a, a you know, strong, emotionally intelligent person to lead without that, you know, I told you so attitude, which we now know is is just not effective. 
Yeah, and, and I think with that, so the emotional intelligence requires self-awareness. And and again, that was another thing I remember, you know, coming out of, of financial services thinking, you know, this is nonsense. Of course I know myself. Who else would know me if I don't know me? <laughs> what is this self-awareness thing? You know, what? And, and one of my teachers used to speak about being human. And again, I used to think, well, we're all here. Well, what's this about? And again, my appreciation of that has so shifted because you know, until I know myself, until I know what are my drivers, what are my fears, what are my motivations, what do I take as a normal practice, what do what are my standards, you know, until I can see what am I blind to, you know, what are those things that are habitual or preconditioned behaviours and attitudes, etc., then I just assume everybody else sees the world like I do, you know, that they make sense like I do, that they have the same fears, the same urgencies, and we don't, particularly in environments like I'm in London and if I'm working with some of the clients in the big conglomerates, they will have people from multiple nationalities and then they will have offices located across the world. And, you know, a sense of humour in Japan can be very different from a sense of humour in Australia. You know, a sense of values and hierarchy in Italy can be very different from uh, Russia or here in Britain we can have, a again, a very different sense of protocol or etiquette or so you know knowing yourself first as the pathway to then knowing others and then appreciating the nuances of others so that you can then you know perhaps come up with a third way how how do you with your likes dislikes values you know must-dos inhibitors all of those things how do you blend that with someone who's very different from you Mm, I'm loving hearing that. And I, I mean, 300% agree. And I know that that is not possible to do the 300, right? But I think, <laughs> you know, when you're aware of yourself, you allow the possibility to tolerate and include, like, you know, we know diversity and inclusion is absolutely top of the agenda as it should be. And only when you know yourself, you're able to include others because that, you know, that fear that somebody else is going to be better than me kind of drops off. I'm good. I'm okay as I am. And I'm able to include others. But I would say, particularly when you are talking about leadership roles, when you're a company leader, a CEO, whichever position that you hold, that you're in, in, in that position of impacting others, it's so essential that we hammer that message because I think, and I've seen this time in time, leaders kind of think that they just need to kind of guide the company. But what we need to be aware of is that the employees don't follow a company. They follow the person that leads the company. And if I see somebody leading with passion, with compassion, if I see somebody that it is you know, understanding me, worrying about me and wanting me to perform and thrive where I am, hands down, I'm going to do everything I can to go with you because I'm bought into all of that. I love what you're doing. I love the person that you are. I love the values that you represent that may be the same as mine or maybe some that I can relate to. And, you know, 100%, I'm going to help you. And I think that's the disconnection that we are seeing. I think also with that comes the leader's ability to be vulnerable and open. And I think, again, if if you're trained to know it all, be the expert, be the problem solver, 
that that's hard for many, you know, particularly people who are transitioning from management, you know, doing the executing, as it were, to leadership, which is more about that facilitation or guiding role, visionary role, if you like. So I think helping leaders to recognise that it's okay to ask, it's okay to ask for help, it's okay to not know, and in fact, by being open and vulnerable, and judiciously so, I mean, I don't mean, you know, I remember going to a, um, it was a, an event at one of the coaching conferences actually, and the woman that spoke, she started out with all the things that she had been anxious about, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, she's a guru and she's telling you she's anxious and that's great because I can connect with that. But then she went on and on and on and I thought, well, if you don't believe in yourself, why should I? So I actually got up and walked to another session. So so that everything's about some form of balance, if you like, not necessarily 50-50, but you've got to be judicious about this. But what I mean is that if you're open and vulnerable, you, there's that human connection where you, people can see, oh, yeah, that that's what I'm going through too, or, yeah, I had that challenge, or, gosh, I didn't really know that that was happening for you. And how can I help? What can I do? You know, if you give people the platform, if you listen to them, if you give them, you know, if you ask them for their advice, there are very few people who will say no. I mean, they, they may be too busy, so it may be no for now, it may not be no forever, uh, or they may not have the the experience in what you're asking, so they may say they may hopefully recommend someone else. But people generally do appreciate being asked about their opinion and being asked to help. And if they don't, well, move on to the next person. <laughs> mm. But I think, and you know, I think Brene Brown said vulnerability is only so when it leads to a point. So it's all great to be open and transparent. As long as it leads to somebody else, otherwise, I would, I would, I would argue you're just a martyr, right? To just yeah. put it out. Yeah. Uh, so I love that, and I think you know when the pandemic started, research showed that one of the things that employees were valuing the most about leaders and their business was exactly that: vulnerability, transparency, and openness. It really made everybody belong because we're on the same boat. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Let's work it out together. Yeah, just teaching though leaders that, isn't it? That, you know, everyone has the same need for safety, respect and belonging. It's a huge shift for a lot of people. Yes, yes. Yes, and there are some, I mean, I, I tend to, I suppose, struggle a little bit with the notion of universal because I think we are very nuanced and because we have different backgrounds and experiences, we can see things very differently. But I do think that they're probably are some fundamental things that we do share as humans and, and psychological safety is one, you know, being respected and valued is another, belonging is another. So, yes, I think, and then I guess that will vary to some extent because I remember on some, uh, sometimes when I do chemistry meetings with some potential coaches, I can get the feedback, oh, they don't like stories, they want you to be the point, you know, they want you to get to it quickly, it's like, Okay, okay. Well, you know, different types of people, different horses for different courses, as it were. You know, so people do have different needs, but I think there probably are some basic ones for. for Is that does that fit fit into the belonging though? That because that's that not their way of thinking, maybe so they don't feel part of that. And I think we've spoken about on our meetings before that you know because we're meeting our coaches where they're at 
we know whether to start with the science or to start with the, you know, the more emotional or the story. It's getting to know that person that is going back to that listening, isn't it, and respecting who they are. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and being fully present. So, you know, Fleur, you and I are doing this course at the minute. So being fully present, observing the twitches, the the blink, the the flushing of the the skin, the the tapping, the the breathing. So all of those little micro clues that we can get, which doesn't mean we're right. You know, we, we could put out something and it turns out it's not not what was going on at all. So we can't be attached to what we offer them. But it's just observing because sometimes those little micro clues can be like a key that opens a, a, a huge door or a vault, if you like, you know, the, 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 the big vault door. Mm. But what I'm hearing is the need for communication. And I love this post from Simon Sinek, who said just recently that communication is not how well or eloquently you say the things, is making sure that the other person has understood what you were saying. And yeah. I think that's what I'm hearing from that, you know, comment is like, yes, being present, yes, understanding what our client or coachee or whoever in front of us is saying, but also is learning to see beyond the words. It's like, what's your body telling me? What is your gestures telling me? What is your breathing telling me? What's your energy telling me? Which again, I think are traits that particularly with leadership roles should be enhanced and then developed even farther. Imagine the power that, you know, as a business, as a team, you would have and you were able to go beyond that of just send you an email. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as well for entrepreneurs, it's the self-awareness piece is really key there as well. And and the book that Paul and I co-authored, which we've called Humble Crumbles, Savoring the Crumbs of Wisdom from the Rise and Fall of Humble Pie. So Humble Pie was his retail pie business and it crumbled in the sense that he had to shut it down. So he started it up and shut it down. So there was from one perspective, definitely a failure there. I mean, he had several successes, but ultimately the business failed in the sense that he shut it down. And what we look at are the blind spots that he had that potentially meant that his decisions weren't optimal decisions. So some of those blind spots, one was the notion of failure, right? So he had such a desire not to fail. You know, he was so committed to the, his shareholders and to his family, et cetera, which, which meant that he wouldn't do certain things because he didn't want to fail. And paradoxically, it probably led to the failure, right? And there were aspects, you know, he was very measured in setting up the business. So he did a lot of research. He has incredibly good connections. You know, he has a background in finance and he was an accountant as well as a salesperson. So when he did his business plans, he did, you know, the three scenarios of positive, neutral, negative. What he wasn't aware of was that he has happy years. So happy years meaning that even the negative scenarios were frankly skewed to the positive. So those sorts of things we don't know ourselves, right? We, we need to have around us coaches, mentors, advisors, you know, positive naysayers, I call them. So not someone who says no just to cut you down or says no because they don't have your risk profile because entrepreneurs have very high risk profiles and friends and family often don't. You know, they're scared for you or they're 
they wouldn't put themselves in that place. So you, you want to find someone who's a naysayer, but from a positive perspective where the intent is to help you to see things differently, which might mean that you avoid a mistake or you see a risk on the horizon or you notice something you've missed in your understanding of the industry, et cetera, not just someone who's trying to cut you down. And on Amazon, it says a gem of a book for entrepreneurs with a wonderful holistic approach. So well done to you both writing the book. And it's apparently an easy read as well for a business book. So I might buy it, Sylvana, because I like an easy I like an easy read when it comes to business. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. We'd love you to. And in fact, one of my clients who ended up being in this sort of interim period between having a corporate role and potentially being made redundant. I think they were still in the negotiation phase. He picked it up and said, oh, thank God, it's not a tome. You know, so many business books are dry and and like a, a Bible, whereas we've made a point of trying to make it quite fun. We have little icons where you could see a, a little drawing of Paul anytime he speaks and then a little drawing of me when I speak and at the end of each we call them slices, so we keep the whole baking analogy going. So we have what we call the crumbs of wisdom at the end of each slice. We even have three recipes. So if you want to learn how to make an Aussie mince pie, a harissa and vegetable pie, or I think the other one might be chicken, I can't quite remember, but we have three pies in there as well. So we, we try and keep the tone light because, again, I think you learn more. Like if you think about it, little kids learn when they're having fun, right? So we wanted it to be an easy, digestible, read with the crumbs of wisdom you can take away which you can come back to at different points and there's a table at the back as well with here was the action and here were the insights so apropos that point about yes do write a business plan do have your three scenarios but just check that you're not skewed to being overly positive which an entrepreneur is more likely to be than overly negative but you know just again be aware of how you see your world and how you make sense of it. Mm, that sounds like a good book for anyone who's starting to think about going into the business world. So thank you for, for writing it. I know it can't be easy to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say it sounds like it would be useful for anybody already in business. It doesn't really matter if you're starting because, again, going back to the shift that is happening right now and understanding that business life, the world is not the same place as it was a couple of years ago, probably your business model and, you know, the, the methods, techniques, everything that you had in place has somewhat shifted over this couple of years. So refreshing on all of that and checking in and understanding whether that still works for your business or whether you need to shape and adapt, it could potentially be a nice shaker. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's a great point you make with you because I think the, what we've seen, some of the people who've read it who are still within corporate and have no intention whatsoever of exiting in the corporate world, but what they've said is that the questions we ask and that they reflect on are also important for their teams within their businesses or for, you know, it's sometimes called intrapreneurship or intrapreneurs as opposed to entrepreneurs. So, you know, creating smaller businesses within a bigger business or just leading a team basically. Yeah. What even I would say, because obviously, you know, as we were saying before, starting to record, I'm still part of the corporate work. Um, I'm an employed person. And I do love, I know that this is going to be controversial because we, we have this sort of laid back approach that we're working for somebody else. So let the problem be the problem. But I do think we need to shake that. We need to understand that we are part of that. 
So if you're part of the problem, you're also part of the solution and holding yourself accountable to being part of that, developing yourself, understanding that you also need to come to the workplace as the best version of yourself and to do your best to do things for you, but also for your company is that dual, is that reciprocity, isn't it? Yes. So that's what I'm kind of hearing that there's a lot of that also in the book that even if you're somebody that is employed, have a read because you may find some things that would be interesting or at least change the way you see the workplace. Yeah. And, and you make a great point about that dual role. And in fact, we, we speak to that. So one of my teachers talks about the idea that Whatever role we're in, we're both a customer and a performer. You know, if I'm a team leader, I'm performing for my team and my team and my customers. But by the same token, my team are my customers and I'm their performer and and vice versa. So we have those dual roles uh, rather than just thinking, okay, well, you're the leader, so you make it all happen or you're my people, so you make it all happen. We, We both have those dual roles. I think it's so important, isn't it, that we are our own creators and not, you know, get stuck in that drama t- triangle of victim. Mm, definitely. So what is the one question you wished we had asked you that we haven't, Savannah? Yes. So I mentioned before that I've shifted from being a control freak to a control enthusiast. The, the, the other part of it, I would say, is that I've also shifted to to your point about making life better, what would certainly help me to make my life better is I recall, I regard myself as a recovering perfectionist. So I take the view that whatever I'm doing now, for the most part, I mean, sometimes I fall back to old patterns, but for the most part, I try to think what's fit for purpose. You know, if this is a volunteer magazine that I'm working on, it's not It's not a corporate highly glossy magazine, etc. So what's fit for the purpose that I'm doing? 17 edits for a, for a community magazine is probably excessive. <laughs> Maybe not so for a, a corporate slick machine or, you know, whatever it happens to be, is it fit for purpose? What is the standard that is good enough? And good enough is good. You know, good enough is not a bad thing. Good enough is good. Mm. Good enough allows us to keep going, doesn't it, instead of yeah, burn out? Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, the thing about being a perfectionist is it's just the burden is enormous. And I think I've now, again, come to realise it's actually intimidating for other people. If you're a perfectionist, it makes it really hard for them. It makes it really hard for them to offer suggestions, alternatives. And, and you know, if you put something to them that's perfect, what contribution can they make? Mm, Whereas if you share a draft or something that's still in creation, then that gives mm, them an opportunity to to contribute. Stops the connection, I think, doesn't it, when we put this, because it's a persona, isn't it, of safety, this perfectionistic behaviour. So I think it can stop a a lovely connection that you could have with someone. Mm. And it's narrow-minded at the end of the day, I think, because, you know, how are you going to learn something if you just think that everything has got to be perfect and the only way of, of being perfect is if you do it? The, the beautiful of, you know, trial and error in company. It's like, oh, I messed it up. This is wrong, but we've learned something along the way. Yeah, yeah. And we, we try in the book actually to help shift that perspective on failure. I mean, I think certainly, you know, some people say, oh, well, in, in Silicon Valley, they all talk about fail fast, fail often, et cetera. So it's out there, it's known. 
that may be true, but but frankly, we still notice a real reticent to reticence to failing. Um, and you know, of course, we do. I mean, no one wants to feel embarrassed or want to feel inadequate. But again, it's the without the failures, you wouldn't have the successes because they're iterative processes towards those successes. And some of the most successful companies aren't today where they started out. You know, they've had multiple iterations and pivots and so on. And it's they've become so successful because they've had failures or they've had to make changes. They've had to tweak and modify along the way. So can you sum up in one sentence, Silvana? Because I know you're going to want to do a perfectionist to answer. <laughs> <laughs> How you've made your life better. I would definitely say it's the fit for purpose. I mean, I now have that little motto. You know, sometimes I have it up on my notice board. So don't kill myself getting absolutely every I dotted and every T crossed, etc. If it's good enough and the, the purpose of what I'm doing gets across and I engage people with I love Lovely. that. Simplify it to amplify. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another great. I'll, I'll pinch that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Silvana. It's been such an enjoyable and insightful um, conversation. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. And we will put the links to your website and any other links to LinkedIn on um, the podcasts notes so people can find you so i'm sure you'll be getting people to get in contact with you tremendous and we'd love to hear people any feedback on on the book or engage with tuesdays we tend to do a um, what we, we share a crumb of wisdom on linkedin and people get into a conversation so if anyone wants to play that game with us we, we'd love to play with them Lovely. That's that's such a good way of engaging. So thank you to our listeners one more week. Thanks for showing us your love and appreciation. And please share this episode with anyone you think will benefit from it. Like, leave a comment and subscribe. And we look forward to seeing you next week. And in the meantime, stay well, stay safe and stay inspired. Much love.